Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Last week we began a new series that I told you will lead us into Easter. And throughout the four weeks of this series, we're looking at the life of Christ and we're looking at his journey to the cross. And the reason why is because he admonished us to follow him on this path. Matthew 10 and 38 says, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so Jesus says, if you don't take up the cross, if you don't walk this same path, then you're not worthy of him. Last week I told you that his path to the cross started before he was even born. It began when humanity sinned against God hundreds of years before he was born. And to better understand this love, we looked at his humble beginnings. It, it almost felt like a Christmas message last week at some points. We looked at Luke chapter 2, specifically at the birth and childhood of Jesus. And I told you that Jesus was not born into an ideal situation, but he didn't let that dictate his future. He knew what he wanted to do with his life, even at the age of 12 years old. And, and we get this small little glimpse of his childhood and, and Jesus at the temple at 12 years old. And I told you that the path to the cross had to go through a 12-year-old Jewish kid that knew his purpose in life. But for the next 18 years, he would have to sit on that calling and, and let God mature him. And, and Philippians 1 and 6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion. So we have that promise. And I told you, don't give up on what you were supposed to do with your life. God will open the right door at the right time. You just have to stay faithful through that. Have you ever had a friend that you have not seen in a while and you reconnect with them and it's like there, were, there was never any time or distance between the two of you? You ever had that happen? I mean, there's very few friends in life that I think are like that. I recently had this happen. Uh, I've been attending some classes with Dr. Mark Rutland uh, down in the Orlando area and, and just trying to glean some leadership from him. And, and, and so there was a special guest that he brought in one week, a worship leader that at one time was a youth pastor friend of mine. And uh, after he left the youth ministry and, and he went into uh, music ministry full time, we kind of lost connection. I, I know he was the director of music at Southeastern University uh, down in Lakeland for a while. Uh, he worked at ORU in Tulsa for a while. And, and so we just, we lost connection there for years. And, and I remember a few years ago, they, he and his wife friended me on Facebook. And, and so, you know, you could keep up with each other's ministry through that. And I think that social media helps stay connected with people that maybe you have not seen in a while. But, but recently he was brought into this, this, this small session in Orlando and uh, to, to do a session on worship. And, and afterwards I invited him to go to dinner and we went to dinner and it was like, it was like we never stopped. We, we were, we were joking around, you know, we were, we were laughing about things and, uh, you know, just, just talking about intimate details of our lives, just like we did once when we were close. And, and Sometimes when you look at God's word, you fail to realize that the character of Christ, that, that even though there's years of separation there, we just kind of pick it right back up. We don't question 
the integrity of his life. We don't question what he did. That the path to the cross for Jesus, it fast forwards in our Bibles from 12 years old to 30 years old. And even though we don't know much about his life, it's kind of like we just pick up like right where we left off. And you really have to force yourself to think about it, that there's this 18 year span there that, that's just lost, that you just don't get any answers for his life. But, but because of our relationship with him, we don't question those years. The only thing that we know about his life during those 18 years is what we looked at last week is that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's what we know. And I can assure you, church, that during those two decades, Jesus was being prepared for what he must do. His father's business. He was being prepared for what he must do. Now, he was most likely earning a living as a carpenter, as we talked about last week. But, but you also have to understand that he was studying at the synagogue to be a rabbi. At the local synagogue there in his community, students would go in and they would study and, and different ones would, would reach certain levels. But many of them never made it past the age of 12. Their education would stop right around the, the age of 12. A rabbi was a teacher of the Torah or a teacher of the law. It, it's not a position that you would just fall into. It's something that you would have to pursue. But, but it's important for us to note that rabbis and priests were very different from one another. I've, I've struggled with this today a little bit because this is very informative, but it, I have to teach this in order for it to lay the groundwork of where we're heading. You see, priests were descendants of Aaron, of the tribe of, uh, of, of Levi, and, and they, they worked at the temple in Jerusalem, and for most of them, it was a full-time job. A rabbi was different in that he worked out of the local synagogue in the, in the smaller cities around and, and, and was not required to belong to a particular tribe or to a particular family. And they often earned money on the side to support their ministerial calling. And so that's how we know Jesus was probably carrying on the family business. He was even referred to as a carpenter. And so he was, he was probably working as a carpenter. And, and this was providing for the family. It was providing for him. And it was supporting his ministerial calling. But priests and rabbis also had a very distinct theological difference. Many differences, actually. Most priests were members of, of the Sadducees, and most rabbis were members of the Pharisees. And together, they make up what we call the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of, uh, of the Jews that would eventually crucify Jesus. So actually, some of his brothers were actually the ones crucifying him. Anyone ever been crucified by one of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, yes, yeah, you're like, yeah, they're sitting right there, but let's keep moving. Um, one key theological difference was in the belief of the resurrection of the dead. This is a major difference between priests and rabbis. The Sadducees, made up of priests, said that there would not be a resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in it. They taught against it. And the Pharisees, who were made up of rabbis, said that there would be a resurrection of the dead. It's interesting to me that the, the Quran, the central religious text of Islam, it lays claim that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a, was a, sis, a distant sister of Aaron. 
In other words, she was related. She came out of that same tribe, uh, the, the tribe of Levi. She came out of that tribe. Muslims try and make the claim that Jesus was a descendant of Aaron, and this would have made him eligible to be a priest. But remember now that priests did not buy into the belief of, of resurrection. They did not believe that the dead could be resurrected. And so, of course, they want to eliminate the deity of Christ. So Islam reduced him to a prophet that prepared the way for Muhammad. Muhammad. That's what they believe. That's who they believe Jesus was. He was a prophet that prepared the way for Muhammad. Muhammad. But the, the Bible lays no such claim. Don't you buy into that garbage because the Bible lays no such claim. The Bible actually says that John the Baptist, he was a descendant of Aaron and he prepared the way for Jesus. We know that Jesus was a descendant from the tribe of Judah. And that means that he would have taken the, the, the path of a, of a rabbi. Because let, let's be honest with each other. The resurrection of the dead, that's a major part of his ministry. You can't believe in Jesus and not believe in the resurrection of the dead. We know this. We know that Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. We know that. We know that he resurrected Jairus' daughter. We know that, that when his friend Lazarus died, four days later, Jesus shows up and he raises him from the dead. And, and this creeps people out, but this is true. At the death on his cross, at the time that Jesus died in Matthew 27, it says that many saints rose from the dead and they walked around Jerusalem. That means your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your best friend that died last year, when Jesus died on the cross, there were people, many saints, that they, they rose from the grave and they began walking the streets of Jerusalem. You talk about the walking dead. That will freak you out right there, right? Even Jesus himself, this is the basis of our faith. Jesus himself was raised from the dead on the third day. And so Jesus could not have taken the route of, of a priest. He was going to have to take the route of a rabbi. And for years, Jesus studied at his local synagogue, advancing in his education. During those silent years that we don't know much about his life, we, we know that in order for him to become a rabbi, he was a very studious young man. And, and so I, I know that I've taught this next part before, but please give me just a few moments because I need to paint the picture of the path that Jesus was on. So if you will, just bear with me just for a moment if this is repetitive for some of you, but we're going to get through this and get to today's text. There were three levels of education to becoming a rabbi. The first level was called Bet Sefer. And, and from the ages of, of 6 to 12 years old, the Jewish boys would, would begin their education in the synagogue school and they were learning to read and write. And, and their textbook was the Torah, which the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And, and the goal was to memorize that sacred text. The Babylonian Talmud said, before the age of six, do not accept pupils. From that age, you can accept them and stuff them with Torah like an ox. Feed them the Torah like an ox. Parents, we could learn something from this right here. When have we ever really gotten serious about stuffing our kids full of God's word like an ox? Man, I don't know about you, but that makes me just, just want to redo life all over again and just sit there and just feed God's word to my kids when I start realizing the difference that it will make in their lives. In order to advance to the second step, the student would have to memorize the entire Torah, five books 
of your Bible, the Torah, the law. They would have to memorize all five books. That's 187 chapters. That's 5,852 verses. That's 1,000, I'm sorry, 156,058 words. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Just to get to the second level of education, they had to memorize that. The next level was called Bet Midrash. And from the ages of 13 to 15, they would continue studying and memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, not just the law, but also all the books of the prophets. That's 39 books in total. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said this. He said, above all else, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. And their education wasn't just reading, writing, and arithmetic the way we, we, we know it. Their education was knowing God's word inside and out. No separation of church and state. It is your education is learning to read and write God's word. And if you can make it past that, if you could memorize the Old Testament, then you would make it to the final level, which is called Bet Talmud. And this was the longest in duration. And it lasted from the ages of 15 to 30. And so now we understand. Why did his ministry start at 30? Because that's what God was preparing him for, to be a rabbi, to be a teacher of his word, putting his word inside of him so that he could teach his yoke. That's what the rabbis would call it. It was their yoke. That's why Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. During this time, the student would learn to emulate their rabbi. Whatever they could do to copy their rabbi, they would do it. They would eat what their rabbi would eat. They would, they would go where their rabbi went, following in their footsteps. They would study the scriptures the same way that their rabbi would study the scriptures. And this was a time of intense discipleship. Yes, the path to the cross involved a young man by the name of Jesus learning to become disciplined in his walk and to become disciplined in what he believed. This is the most crucial step that is often left out of our path to the cross. Please don't miss this church. This is so important. This is so crucial in our path to the cross because today's Christianity abuses grace and does not require us to become disciplined in our walk. And that's not right. Today's modern Christianity It doesn't value grace the once that grace was once valued. It doesn't protect it. It would do some of us some good to walk in the footsteps of our rabbi and to become disciplined in our day-to-day -day living. Listen, if your actions were not pleasing to God before you met Jesus, what makes you think that your actions after you met Jesus are going to please God? And you can't get to the cross walking on the, on the wrong path. You can't get to the cross walking on the same path that you were walking before you met Jesus. You've got to change streets. You've got to change avenues. There is a fork in the road. And at the moment you give your heart to Christ, you can't keep going this way. At some point, you've got to get on this path because this is the path that leads to the cross. 
In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see, becoming a disciple, becoming disciplined will eventually help you get to your place of destiny. So let me ask you a question. Do not answer this out loud because some of you will embarrass yourselves publicly. But, but listen, let me ask you this. Does the path that you are on lead to the cross? Does the path that you're on right now, does it look any different than the path that you were on before you met Jesus? And some of you, you, you haven't started that relationship with Jesus. We're going to give you that opportunity before you walk out of this room today. And let me tell you, when you do, he is going to guide you and he is going to direct you. And hopefully today this will encourage you to go down that different path. And so now all that Jesus needed was the approval of two rabbis. His training is behind him. He has been prepared and he needs the approval of two rabbis to begin his ministry. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to jump from one to the other and, and then we will close out today in, in Matthew chapter 4. Quite a few verses, but it's so important that we, that we read this today. I'm going to start in John chapter 1. I think it's important for us to note that all four of the Gospels somehow refer to the baptism of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all mention specifically the baptism. And then in John chapter 1, it, 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 it talks about John the Baptist and how he alludes to the baptism. It, even though it doesn't necessarily say that he baptized him, we know that this is the same encounter because of certain things that happen and, and just the witness that, that, that John explains to us. So John chapter 1, starting at verse 29. It says, the next day he, he is John the Baptist. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. Here's what John said he saw. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now quickly we go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And there you have it. Not one, but two voices 
giving their approval for Jesus to begin his ministry as a rabbi. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Two voices giving their approval and Jesus is now ready to start his ministry as a rabbi. Is not that exactly what we're looking for though? You see, we need to endure the time of preparation just to hear God set us forth into our calling. It's no secret, psychologists agree, that the greatest thing you can do for a man is for him to get the approval of his father. I teach it during premarital counseling. And I can recognize when there are certain men that have never had the approval of their father. I have lived a very blessed life with the man that raised me, my father, Jack McKinley, and how he has, has been so approving of me throughout the years. But yet there's other men in this room that your father was not even a part of your life. And we long for that. We need that. And so God will send other people and other men and sometimes women into your life to give that godly approval that you need because that's what we need to help us remain on the path to our destiny. But every child wants to hear the approval of their father. There's a Spanish story of a father and son who had become estranged and, and the son ran away and the father went out looking for him, searching day and night. And, and for months and months, he searched for him to no avail. And finally, in this last ditch effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper and the ad read this, it said, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. You see, I want it. You want it. We all want it. We want the approval. It's a human desire to receive love and to receive acceptance. And before the father let Jesus fulfill his purpose, he gave him his approval. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, you didn't know it when you left the house this morning. But, but you came here, whether you knew it or not, you came here today looking for your heavenly father's approval. You need that. That's the reason why you showed up today. Oh, I know that we think we showed up to worship him. And theologically, I believe that is the purpose for us gathering together. But, but, but you have this deep, just, just longing inside of you that wants your heavenly father's approval. Because your heavenly father's approval means so much more to your life than your earthly father's approval. Your heavenly father's approval, it means more to you than any other approval of, of any other person on this planet. And as a child of God, what you need to know today is that God is proud of you. But, but you don't know what I did last night. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it from its own. You need to understand that right here, right now, in this moment, God is proud of you. And he's longing for you to understand that. He's longing for you to know that. That you cannot do anything else to make him approve of you more. 
Before Jesus had performed one miracle, he had not even performed the first miracle yet. God looked down from heaven. The skies opened up and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can't do enough for God to love you any more than he loves you right now in this moment. You see, it had nothing to do with his achievement. It had everything to do with his affiliation. And the same is, is, is for you and I. It has nothing to do with what we can accomplish for the kingdom of God. Those things are great. And yes, there are rewards for those things. But it doesn't make God love you anymore. It doesn't make God any more proud of you. For you and for me, we have to understand it is not about our achievement, but it is about our affiliation. He looked down and said, this is my son. And he does the same thing for you and I. He looks down at our lives and says, this is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. And so some of us, we've got to get to that place where we stop trying to earn God's approval with our actions and start acting like we're a child of the king right now. Now, you're not ready. You're not ready. I'm preaching my guts out right now, and you're not ready. Because when you know you're a child of the king, you walk different. When you know that you are royalty, you act different. Because you know that it affects everybody in your family. It affects the royal family when you mess up. And it puts a deep sense of responsibility. Listen, that's what I'm talking about, how we've messed grace up. Grace is wonderful for our lives. It gives us the power to overcome. It gives us the power to live. But grace does not give us a license to sin. Grace helps us understand that we are from a royal lineage. That we are children of the king. And that we must act like we are children from the king. And Jesus heard the father's voice from heaven and he knew who he was. If you don't hear anything else, understand this today. You are a child of the living God and he is proud of you. And he wants you to accomplish great things with your life. And he is paving a path that, that no one is going to keep you off of. You are the only person that can walk away from that path. But there's a verse that messes me up. Remember I told you that, that basically all the Gospels mention this thing. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, there's no, there's no chapter break. There's nothing there that separates it from his baptism. But, but right after Jesus is baptized, the Bible says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And this messes us up. Because it's great when we're here with the crowd. There's strength in numbers. It's a whole lot easier to walk a Christian life when you're surrounded by people to keep you accountable. But it's a different story when you get out there in the wilderness and you're by yourself. And Jesus is surrounded by a group of people, a large group of people that they're watching John baptize people. 
And he's surrounded by that. He gets the approval of heaven on his life. And immediately right after that, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. When you hear the confirmation from heaven, church, you better be ready to face the confrontation of hell. Understand that. Let me, let me just get all in your head just for a moment because we've got to change our mentality today. Some of you have been wondering why your life is under attack. Others, you know why your life is under attack because it's stupid decisions that you keep making over and over and over. And that's not what this is about today. I could preach for hours on that. Let's don't. Some of you are under attack and you have no understanding of why. You were disciplined. You have been faithful. It seems that you would be exempt from the enemy's attacks on your life. Because it, it, it's not that you're getting it all wrong. And if that's the case, then my question to you is this. Why wouldn't the enemy attack you? You see, your calling and your purpose in life, it is not just so you can feel better about yourself. Your calling and your purpose in life, it's not just so you can get a pat on the back or a certificate on the wall. That's not what it's about. Your purpose and your calling in your life is always going to be used by God to reach somebody else and to minister to the masses. Always. God is always going to use you to touch people's lives if you will allow him to. So why wouldn't the enemy want to attack your life? Especially if you're getting some things right. Job 1 and 1. Well, this story messes you up. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And if you know the rest of that story, you know that heaven's approval of Job put a target on his back. That the enemy came looking at him and, and, and came from every angle trying to destroy, to, to destroy his life. But if you remember the story, God said, I'll let you mess with his life, but you can't kill him. You can't get, listen, the enemy can come at you, but he cannot kill you. Your, your time is not up till God says your time is up. And, and when heaven, when heaven confirms you, hell is ready to confront you. When you get the approval of God Almighty on your life, you should know right now, I'm letting you know, heaven is going to release an attack on your life. Why? Because you are primed and ready to fulfill your destiny. And all he wants to do is just kick you off that path. Just get you to take a different route, a different road. And, and the baptism of Jesus was one of the most significant events of his life. But I don't know if we realize it when we read it. There's a reason why all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why they all tell the story. And even in John that tells a different set of stories alludes to, to this and, and fills us in on some more details of it. Because this is a very significant event in the life of Jesus. And I think that we too often discredit this event. It's one of the only events in the Bible where the Holy Trinity shows up together, all in one place, all at one time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all in one place at the same time. And if the, mo if the three most important beings in the universe show up to a baptismal service, you better know something great is about to happen in that moment. The son is about to start his ministry. He is about to start and, and walk in the calling of being a rabbi. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The heavens open up and God the Father speaks the word over him. 
Now, this isn't a marriage series at all, but let me read you a verse that we often relate to, to marriages. Listen to this. Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wives. This is the part I want you to, to, to really focus in on. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, us, we're the bride of Christ, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We are cleansed, sanctified by the washing of water with the word. Every time that you hear the word of God, it washes out the dirt and grime that keeps messing up your vision of what God wants for your life. I wear contacts and in the past six months, it's been rough because my eyes are, are somewhat changing or something. I, I've got something that's happening to where I would leave my contacts in for, I'm not going to lie, I was about to say three weeks at a time. I would leave my contacts in for six to eight weeks at a time. For those of you that work in an optometrist's office, I'm just send your email somewhere else. I don't want to talk to you. Please don't talk to me. Six to eight weeks at a time for almost 20 years, I would leave my contacts in and, and, and just take them out every so often when I would feel you know, a little dirt or grime or something. I'd clean them out and put my glasses on for the night, put them back in the next morning and go, you know, rest. And I don't, they're disposable, but I don't throw them out every two weeks. No, man, you can stretch those things. You can. They're expensive, aren't they? I have astigmatism. It's really expensive. But something's happened over the six months. My eyes are changing, and it's gotten to where I'm having to take them out every night right now because something gets on. I mean, like right now, this side of the crowd over here, you're just a blur right now, but it's okay. That's where all the ugly people sit anyway. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Kind of. So, so just be careful who you sit with. Or sit next to ugly people and it makes you look that much prettier. But let's keep going. <laughs> Sometimes, now it's, it's nightly, I have to take the contacts out. I get some solution in my hand. I, I clean the contacts. And, and even the next morning, I do the same thing. Wash them out before I put them back in my eyes because I've got to clean the contacts. I've got to get the dirt and the grime off of them. You've got to do the same exact thing with your life because you go through the week and dirt and grime tries to attach itself to your vision for your life. And what you have to realize is that it's the, it's the washing of water with the word that cleanses us. Your vision for your life and where God wants to take you, your path to the cross it, it has to be washed of water with the word. Every time that you hear the word of God, it clarifies God's direction for your life. Jesus, he was prepared in the synagogue. For 18 years, he was prepared in the synagogue. He was approved at the Jordan River. But here's, here's, here's where we miss it. So many times we miss this. Too many of us, we have a misunderstanding of what the wilderness does to your life. And I've got to fly through this. I don't have much time. The wilderness does not prepare you. You're prepared as you're receiving the word and putting the word in you. The wilderness does not prepare you. When you walk out of this room today, this is what prepares you. The wilderness outside of these walls, that does not prepare you. The wilderness tests you. It's just like school. 
They pour all this information into you. Then they give you a test to see if you retain that knowledge. Church, listen to me. Some of you are about to be set free if you'll grab hold of this. Don't miss it. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is right after he was baptized. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, and listen to what Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was quoting Deuteronomy 8 and 3. He had to learn that between the ages of 6 and 12. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he was quoting Deuteronomy 6 and 16 when he said that. He was prepared in the synagogue for this moment of temptation. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he was quoting Deuteronomy 6 and 13. The word that he got while he was in the synagogue. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. On Sunday, you've got to get the word in you. And on Monday, the word has got to come out of you. On Sunday, you get the word from heaven and the approval of your heavenly father. But on Tuesday, you've got to face the wilderness of hell. On Sunday, you get heaven's confirmation. But trust me, on Wednesday, you face hell's confrontation. But church, don't fret because he has washed you with his word to prepare you for this wilderness. Let me show you how this works in your life. You and your spouse were fighting on the way to church. I know you were. It, it happens. It, it's why Mandy and I always ride to church separately. But you and your spouse, you're fighting on the way to church. And here's what the word, you just, you just learned this. Just a few weeks ago, we were, we were learning this. My battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against my ignorant husband or my stupid wife. That is not my battle. And, and you know what? I was washed with the word. I was washed with the word. I was there to receive it. And so I know this. God bless their stupid heart and their dumb head. But I know that I'm not battling that flesh and blood. The enemy attacks your finances. And you know this because you were here. You heard God pour this word into your life that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. When your car breaks down. Anybody had your car break down lately? Just me. Okay. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And you knew that. But the rest of that verse is, Jesus came that I might have life and that I might have, I might have it more abundantly. That's the promise. You're facing temptation in your life. And when you allow God's word to be poured into you, you are reminded that when I am tempted, God will provide a way out so that I can endure it. Maybe he's attacking your health right now. 
And because you're here, you know that by his stripes, you're healed. And unless you have been washed by his word, you don't have that when the test comes in your wilderness. You are prepared in the synagogue for years when you thought that your dream had been forgotten. God was preparing you and if you would allow him to, he will pour his word into you and he will wash dirt and grime away so that you have a clear vision of what he wants you to see for your life. God spoke it over you on Sunday because he was washing you with his word. And and I, I dare to ask this, or did he? Or did he speak it over you? What I'm about to say to you It's going to be very convicting. And I want you to know I love you. I'm not judging you. I'm your shepherd and I want God to use you in a great way. But the facts are the facts. You can't devalue Sunday worship and expect to be an overcomer on Monday morning. You can't neglect the washing of water with the word and defeat the hounds of hell the next week. You and your family need God's word today more than you have ever needed it. More than any other generation, we need it. Parents, don't expect your children to fall in love with Jesus when you've set travel ball up as an idol in your home. Don't expect your children to make godly decisions with their lives when you won't show up to his house because you stayed out too late the night before. Listen, if you want to know me, come to my house. Because when I go to your house, I conform to your ways. Some of you, you leave your your shoes at the front door. So if I walk into your house and I see shoes at the front door, you know what that makes me want to do? stomp my feet through your kitchen, but I don't. I take off, I take off my shoes and I leave them at the front door. That's what I do. But if you come to my house, we don't take our shoes off. If you come to my house, my dog is allowed to jump up on the couch. For some of you, your dog can't jump up on your couch. My dog would jump up on the couch and get right in my lap and lay there for hours. You may not let that happen at your house. You come to my house, you will see what I prefer to watch on TV. You will see what I like to eat. You will get to know me better by coming to my house. Why wouldn't we understand that when we come to God's house, even if it is in a middle school cafeteria, Why would we not understand that this is where we get to know him better? That this is where he says, I will wash you with the word and I will get you prepared. I'll prepare you here to walk out into that wilderness where you will be tested. And if you are washed with the word here, you will have the knowledge out there. The word will go in you and it will come out of you when you need it. Because it's here where he speaks over us. 
And Jesus couldn't get to the cross without the word being spoken over him and the word being stored in him. Because the path to the cross is empowered by the word that God speaks over you. Because the word that God speaks over you gets in you. And the word that's in you will come out of you when you need it the most. That's why we have church. It's because this is his house. If you want to know his heart, this becomes priority. It was a priority in the life of Christ that in order to be a rabbi, he not only had to memorize the word, he had to hide the words in his heart that he might not sin against God. Our path to the cross requires us to do the same. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.